Hey folks, in this episode, it's all about retouching in Photoshop with Pratik Nayak. This is Twitter. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. A really special treat for you guys today, complete with a software demonstration, screen share, all that. I'm here with uh, Pratik Nayak. He is one of the most sought after retouchers in the you know the world of retouching i mean he's a compositing artist knows his way around photoshop like we you know know the know our way around you know our kitchen or something so it's an honor to have him on the show and sort of pick his brain about the industry overall and then sort of get into what an actual professional retouch is like so Pratik, welcome to the show man how are you doing Oh, I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be such a great episode, especially for people who want to know more about retouching and the in the life. Because people always ask me, like, what's a life like to be a retoucher? How do you get started? And, you know, tell me more about that, that aspect of things. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. And it's, you know, the one of the, the questions that we get or we do these on, on our Twip Pro community. Do we do these critique sessions once a week? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you tell me, tell me what you think about this analogy. I equate retouching to plastic surgery uh, I, it, it, in, in the respect of if someone knows that you were there, then you failed. <laughs> yes, I actually love that analogy and I've used something like that before. Um, and you're absolutely correct because plastic surgery, you know, when you look at places that have really good plastic surgery like Korea, you barely get to see, you know, mistakes. Mm -hmm. But when you look at plastic surgery done, done wrong, it's very, very obvious and notable. So that's a very appropriate analogy. Yeah, yeah. I use that one. What's the other one I use? Oh, uh, car work. So if you get in an accident in your car and you have to have some <laughs> work done on the car, if someone says, wow, I can barely see the damage on the car, <laughs> that's, that's a fail, right? You don't yes. want them to know. They no. should look at the car and not make a comment. Say, oh, nice yes. car, man. You know, <laughs> move it's on. It's another good analogy is also like retouching. Retouchers are like background singers. We don't want them to really take full control. Like if Beyonce singing on stage, you don't want to notice the background singer being the main star. You want Beyonce to be the main star. Yeah. And so retouching is like that. The photographer is the main star. We're there to support. Well, particularly, let's talk about that a little bit. So the, the you know, depending on, on the photographer's where they are in their path to being a professional photographer, they're going to either either be able to afford someone like you to just push all their work off to or, you know, want to suck it up and do it themselves and learn how to retouch. What's yeah. your recommendation? Should if, if you're if you're, you're on a path and you want to get to the, say, Sue Bryce level, yeah. you know, should you should you automatically be building your team up of people that know your aesthetic and can execute on it? Or should you be doing it yourself initially? That's a good question because I think many people are in that balance of not knowing where to be, especially if they're in a position with their career where they feel like they're ready to step up and have a retoucher, but they feel like they're not strong enough on their own with their retouching capabilities. It's There is no defined answer, but what I recommend is this. Think about it like this. If you've ever been on a set with an art director and the art director has no idea what he's talking about, do you know how frustrating that is for a photographer, right? I mean, yeah. I think I've been there and I've seen it myself where they ask for things that it's physically not possible to do. So I think that no matter what your role is, in this example, as a photographer, you should know what the process of retouching is like, even though you might not be interested in mastering it or getting a full grasp of it, knowing exactly what happens in the process is good for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, if you're trying to hire a retoucher, how do you communicate the things that you want done? And number two, how do you know what's possible? Because sometimes um, if you ask for something and it's very hard to do or difficult or maybe not even possible, the team that you're communicating with it maybe may even give up on you because they might not feel like you're capable of understanding what the limitations are. And so yeah. if your expectations are not met um, as a photographer, it could be your fault sometimes because you're not sure how to communicate what your vision is. So even if you're not familiar with retouching, get familiar with it because it's easy to communicate to see what's possible with your images. So you can also be a better photographer, you know, like going back on set and seeing what's possible to fix before the post-production happens is tremendous. You'll save so much time and money in the post-production phase. So for that reason, I think it's so critical to know. Yeah. Now, 
when it comes to actually knowing um, should you actually know how to retouch a photograph and should you do everything yourself, that comes down to a couple of things. Number one, do you have the budget to outsource? And number two, is it feasible for you in terms of turnaround time? Because sometimes you might work with clients that want stuff right away and sometimes retouchers don't have that flexibility. But you know, having those things in consideration can provide a lot of answers for people. Yeah, see, then that just those words make a lot of sense. Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and, and and one of the other one of the other questions that that pops up is, in my head at least, is yeah. the differences between retouching and compositing. Oh you yeah, know, I know there's an overlap yeah. there, obviously, uh-huh. but you know we're pushing pixels, so you know it's they they have that commonality. But what in your head, as a professional retoucher, are they the same thing, or is is in other words, is is compositing just retouching cranked up to ten, or is it something, <laughs> something completely different? What do you say? I think compositing fits in the genre of retouching. So retouching is kind of like a general umbrella, and within that umbrella, there are people who are specialists in many things. Um, sometimes. Some people are specialists in just doing skin. Some people are specialists in just doing color grading and compositing is one of those facets. So with compositing, it's very um, interesting because they are used to working on commercial jobs and jobs like for movie posters where their whole lives are to um, take elements of one image and bring it into another image and extract like a, a base file and like take heads from another file and make them all seamlessly look good together. And that skill set in itself sometimes is entirely different from knowing what good skin retouching is like. And it's just like you said, plastic surgery, you know, plastic surgery fits in a realm of kind of like being a doctor where you can specialize in many things. You can go into cardiology, you can go into general practitioner and uh, or, or just kids or pediatrics. Um, and that's kind of how I like in that too. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Um, some people will say, and we talked about this, I think, when we, we were both in Phoenix at the, the Sue Bryce Portrait Masters Conference. Um, uh-huh. And that I'm not sure if that interview will have aired by the time this one goes, but if not, you'll see it soon. Um, but we, we talked a little bit about the idea of getting it right in camera and yeah. how some factions of the photography world rail against, you know, hey, you should shoot and get it right in the camera. And if you're retouching or doing post-production, you're cheating. Yeah. There's one side of it. And then the other side of it is like in the side that I fall on or the people that say, you know, yeah, yeah, I can get in right in camera. But sometimes <laughs> I'm shooting assets that will later become elements of a final piece that I have in my mind's eye. Well, yeah. what do you how do you how do you respond to each one of those crowds? The get it right in camera crowd and the, you know, I'm, I'm shooting elements for my final production. That's a, a really good conversation piece. And I think a lot of people tuning in probably are tuning in for a couple of those reasons alone. And they want to know, you know, as a retoucher, do you consider the cheating if you are manipulating a photograph? And funny enough, my background actually started because I looked at a I looked at a magazine on, on a stand when I was checking out at a grocery and I'd look at a photograph and think to myself, this is so overdone. This is this is even this is not even photography anymore. This is an illustration, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I could do better than this. So I'm going to pick up a camera. I'm going to you know, retouch the photograph to make it look like a photograph. And to me, that journey kind of took me to a place where I realized that in a way, I understand that you know some people look at it as, as cheating because you want to have an actual representation of the photograph. And if you're a journalist or maybe if you're a landscape photographer and you and you truly want to capture that that essence of what you see, um, the idea generally is that you shouldn't manipulate a photograph because you're manipulating reality. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, the second your camera takes a photograph, it's already being manipulated because it's being perceived by how the sensors are, are interpreting the color and light information yeah. and then giving you a representation of what the sensor sees, not what your eye sees. So I think that post-production is necessary because even if you're from either one of those camps, you can use post-production to achieve both of those, those results. So number one, you can use post-production to actually get what you see with your eye by taking that raw file and manipulating it to to match what your memories were in that moment, mm-hmm. and um, so you can you can still be true to to what the scene looks like by using post production, and you can use post production to also add a, a fantasy element to it or 
um, inject emotion into the scene. Because when we think about memories, right, when you look back at the last year of all our memories, there's some studies done that show that when you look back in time, your memories are altered no matter how factual you think they were, and you render them as fact. And those, some of those motivations are emotional connections, you know, the environment that day, maybe it was really cold, so you're feeling cold, and the scene looked colder than it was. Mm -hmm. And so we manipulate a photograph to inject those memories to create a, a factual piece of reality based on those emotions. So, you know, what is reality is another question effectively um, that post-production can answer. Oh, we could go really deep on that. What is reality, right? So what, <laughs> yes. is, what is reality? What is red, right? Yes. This color red on my chair, you may see it differently than I see it differently. So who says what's the correct red, right? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting. That whole, the whole world of, and the controversy around getting it right in camera and, and not retouching is interesting to me because like like you said, you go back in time. If you go back in time to say the um you know the film days. Remember that stuff that you oh, know was like what? the subject no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I heard about that Kodak company. <laughs> yeah, there was this company called Kodak a while um, but you know you go back to the film days and it, People try to say, yeah, you got to get it right in camera because that's the purest representation of the scene. Yeah. Um, and then my response to that is, yeah, but you're still making film choices. You're making lens choices, f-stop, yeah. shutter speed, composition choices. You're yeah. altering the scene. And if you're shooting film, there's another layer of processing. You got to or two other layers because you got to take True. that film, process it and you make choices there. What kind of developer am I going to use? Am True. I going to push it? Am I going to pull it? And then once it's developed, you make more choices <laughs> on how you're going to print it, right? So yeah. arguably, film was less true to life than, than you know, digital is. Do you, you agree with that? It's true. And also, remember, um, even in the fashion world, people would post-process, not post-process, they would, you know, scan the film, and they would actually dodge and burn the film as well to bring yeah. out shadows and highlights. Yep. And to be honest, a lot of the digital processing that we do is actually pushing the shadows and highlights to retain that information too. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. So um, I want to, before we dive into the sort of the practical hands-on and have you share your screen, um, I want to give a shout out. I know you have some amazing courses and stuff up there for people that want, after they see what you do, they yeah. want to know how to do that. Right? <laughs> so yes. instead of saving that to the end, I want to I put it at the front. So oh. you can like say, hey, this is, you can learn what I'm going to do and then I'm going to show you how I do it. So what what did you put together and and where is it? Where can people get that stuff? Yeah, so um in the description we're going to provide links and things. But we have um I have a I said we like me and Frederick made it, but I have a course. It's called <laughs> The Royal uh, We, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we made it as in me and the artificial person. Yeah. But um <laughs> uh, it's called the Retouching Series and the course is basically designed for photographers and even retouchers or people who even want to know about retouching um and it's built up in a way that even if you have 5 minutes a day and you want to learn something about the whole process, you can jump in whether you're a professional or a beginner and actually learn about the whole process from start to finish. And it's also based on topics. So if you're trying to learn how to do hair specifically or color correct skin or some of the real world issues that we face as photographers, then you can dive in, learn what you need and get out rather than spending eight hours and watching an entire video and trying to dissect it piece by piece. Oh, fantastic. You know, when, it, when I'm trying to you know pretend i'm critiquing one of those <laughs> you know it's usually around skin you know and i am yeah. you know i'm okay in photoshop i'm pretty you know i'm no critique but i'm okay in there um but you know the 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 magical thing i think about what what beauty retouchers and portrait fashion uh retouching successful retouchers do is like we said at the beginning it doesn't look like you did anything so you can always tell uh, a retoucher that is not that skilled because the works tends to be heavy-handed and the you know the models tend to start looking barbie-ish and without detail in the skin right and i think it's an art to retaining all that detail while making the the model look better you know and and the best that they can look you, do you agree with that Oh, yeah. And especially now it's interesting. Um, you know, when selfie cameras start to have a lot more detail and resolution. Yeah. And so now people are scared of that because they don't know what to do. And so now Instagram and Facebook have started releasing filters intentionally on their apps to smooth out skin. So Can we're you believe back that? <laughs> <laughs> 
that is just that is just crazy you use that too don't you frederick i do not i do not (laughs) what you see is what you get sorry that he's that beautiful you can tell i am this is yeah all my perfections imperfections going on uh cool man so what do you say we dive in i want to i want to see what you i want to see critique making magic and pushing pixels i want to see that process i would love that so we are gonna dive in i think is a good time to do it now yep yep Uh go ahead and share your screen i'm ready to go all right cool there we go so here is my screen so let me preface this by saying that this image i actually shot this image um, a couple of months ago and going back to the aspect of you know trying to um jump in and, and do some retouching let me make sure I have my Photoshop screen. There we go. All right, perfect. Yeah. Um, so what I was saying initially about um, how you know post-processing can be used to bridge the gap between reality and what the camera captures, I actually shot this natural light and I actually added some flash to it. And the reason for that is because even though the natural light is coming from the right-hand side, the shadows themselves were really clipped, um, especially when you look at her face. I intentionally darkened the hair a little bit to bring attention to the face, but I wanted to open up the shadows a little bit more. And what I noticed was when I was looking at the scene in person, it looked just like you see it now. But when I went to take the photo, because of dynamic range, the shadows were pretty much kind of gone. And so I had to use a flash. I used a Elinchrome Octobox. I bounced it off the wall behind me and brought it in to fill in those shadows. So whatever I was capturing in camera was as close as possible to what I was getting in, in Photoshop. So I, even though we are retouchers, we still abide by the philosophy is trying to get it as right as possible in camera so we have the better range to work with. Um, so aside from that, my friend Tiger here really has fantastic skin. So we didn't really use a lot of makeup. We used some foundation and stuff, but we kept her skin quite natural because anything else that we try, we are trying to get rid of will retain the natural skin quality and texture. One mistake that I see a lot of people make is that when they actually retouch or have a makeup artist on set, they try to use a lot of foundation to cover up the skin texture and flaws. And it's actually kind of counterproductive because Mm. what that does is it hides a lot of that initial beautiful texture of the skin. And so even though you're done retouching, you end up with really flat looking skin that doesn't have a lot of detail. So my trick when I'm working with a makeup artist is telling them not to use a lot of foundation. And so that gives me the skin texture that that you see here. And yeah that is a good tip you know i would it's it's completely counterintuitive to what i would have thought the reality of make it easier on the retoucher to to you know smooth out the skin as much as possible before you give them the file exactly and so the today is a good demonstration of that because when we actually go in and, and edit some of the skin you'll see how fast we're able to get something that looks really clean and nice and um and and yeah so let me just jump into it now and the first thing that i always do when i work on when i work on the face is that i try not to zoom in past the point where i see the lips and the eyes kind of in the center of the frame Mm. Um, and the reason for that is if you start by zooming in like this everything begins looking like a blemish and everything begins looking like you want to get rid of it but you actually want to start like this because everybody that's looking at your particular image on Instagram or Facebook, they are looking at it like this and they're not zooming into those fine details. Um, So we're going to start like that as well. And what we are actually going to do is we're going to start with a standard healing brush here. And we're going to talk a little bit about the skin retouching and using the healing brush specifically. The first thing, um, if for those of you who are never have never used a healing brush before or might have used it incorrectly or want to know the best way of using it, I always recommend starting over here on your layers palette. And if you don't see your layers palette, make sure you go to window and then come over here to your layers palette. And obviously everybody is going to have a different layout. So whether your layers palette is here on the top or on the left or right, just make sure you locate it first. And then you will add, you want to add a new layer here with this new layer icon. So this new layer itself is blank. It has nothing on it. And I'm going to actually heal on this layer. I'm going to rename this healing. And the beauty of this is because we're using a blank layer, we're going to keep our file size very, very light. And the purpose of today is keeping a light workflow without trying to go as, without overdoing it so that it appeals to most audiences. Then I'm going to go ahead and make sure that my healing brush is selected. And I want to also make sure that my sample size here on the top, it says current and below. 
And if you have another option here, I'm using 2017, but if you have um, 2019, it should say like a checkbox that says um, use a healing brush algorithm or something like that. Um, make sure it's uh, disabled so that you are using kind of like um, the old healing brush algorithm because face um, Photoshop recently updated it. So the healing brush is a little bit different and I'll make sure to elaborate that in the description in case people are confused about that because there's some more documentations I want to provide, but just make sure it, um, you're using the um, algorithm for the original healing brush is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, and I, again, I don't have it because I'm using an older version of Photoshop at the moment. And the reason for that is just stability. I don't really trust the newer version as much, so I want to make sure it doesn't crash on. on oh, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> See, that's another power tip right there. It is. It is. If you ever have problems with your Photoshop version, downgrade. You can downgrade through the Adobe Creative Cloud and keep both versions on your photo on your computer, which I do as well. Wow. So again, I have my healing brush selected, and the first step, the first tip is um, you wanna use your bracket keys on your keyboard if you're using an English version of the keyboard. And effectively that just changes your brush sizes so that you're able to increase and decrease in incremental fashion. So you can see on the top left where you see my icon with the brush size, it has my size and it, when I use my bracket keys, I can change the actual brush size without going back up there again. So that's one shortcut that I use. And in the retouching series, I provide a ton of information and actions and shortcuts on how to change all this to make your process a lot more efficient, as well as a setup that allows me to actually set all my retouching layers up in one go, which you can see here with these color-coded actions um, that it is provided within the series too. But anyways, going back here, I'm gonna use my healing brush. The only other setting that you really need to know is over here where it says hardness, I always keep my hardness at 0%. Um, there are two camps, two camps, specifically one that keeps their hardness at 100%, one at 0%. For me, the reason why I like 0% a lot is because I can easily blend in the skin once I'm done healing, because the 0% hardness basically means that the, the edge of the healing brush is gonna be quite soft. And the reason why it's quite soft is now when I heal, it's going to blend in nicely with the surrounding skin texture, but it's not going to blur it either. So it's not going to be a problem whether you have hard or soft skin. It's going to blend in nicely. The colors are going to blend in and you're not going to have to worry about it so much. So that's the reason why I use a um, soft edge healing brush. The only thing... Pretty, can, I, can I interject? I want to ask yeah. just one quick question. Um, the, the healing brush versus just this, the regular clone stamp tool. Ah, why, yes. Why would you choose one over the other? So the healing brush tool basically is kind of like an advanced clone stamp tool. When you use the clone stamp tool, all it basically does is that when I actually sample in a, any area, let's say I sample in a background, and the way that you actually sample using the clone brush is you're gonna use Alt or Option on your keyboard, and you're gonna pick a reference point that you're gonna be using to actually pick a source point. So if I pick a source point like this, and then come over here, and before I start brushing, note that I actually have my sample size to current and below, and that's gonna allow me to also work on a blank layer. So I'm gonna sample here, I'm gonna start brushing, and you'll notice that the only thing that it does is it copies and pastes the information from one area to another. And although that seems like it should be enough, if I come down here and actually do the same thing where I sample and paste, what's gonna happen is it'll cover up the blemishes but the luminosity will be the same as a source point. So it's not oh. actually gonna be blending in nicely. Yes, yeah, okay, perfect. And so I'm gonna use Command Z to undo and then go back to my healing brush and watch what happens now when I use my healing brush. If I can actually click on the healing brush. All right, there we go. And now when I actually cover it up and watch when I let go, it actually blends in nicely. Wow. You see, yeah. so it's, it's very, very important that you use a healing brush for skin. It makes the job a lot easier for you. And if you're hardcore, you could totally use a clone brush. I highly recommend doing that. <laughs> that was that was old school. Remember old school days were were the clone tool and save as change the name. <laughs> oh yes. I do remember that. Yes. Yep. Before at a certain point, I think it was Photoshop uh a 5.0 or 4.0, I don't remember the exact version, but there wasn't a, a healing brush. Mm -hmm. Um and I started back when um, Photoshop, it was 5, not CS5, but 5.0. Yeah. 
and I got uh, these brand new updated tools like the the healing brush and <laughs> and yeah. you know all you these missed, features. You missed the era. I started in Photoshop at version two. That's, <gasps> that's oh, the rings on the trees. And version three is when Adobe introduced layers. So, oh yeah! Wow. So, so we had to become channel masters back then. <laughs> so you were in a committed relationship with each of your brushstrokes, basically. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah, we are quite spoiled here. Um, especially now, like when we're dealing with hair, the healing brush is such a great tool because we can select an area and then work on it piece by piece. We don't have to actually do it in one stroke. You see? Yeah. It makes it uh, it makes it really really nice. And so I zoom in there now and then when I want to work on a really delicate area, but I keep on zooming back out because I don't want to be focused too much on you know overdoing skin. And for me, the the results come from actually keeping the skin looking nice and beautiful and intact. And, um, and when I'm and looking at this image, it doesn't it looks better, obviously, because you've, you know, done lots of corrections to it, but it doesn't look unnatural at all. Exactly. And this another testament to this is always making sure that your brush size itself is not really big. I tend to see people having a brush size that's really large and then they'll go across the image and start just haplessly, you know, scattering the skin around, but you know, it doesn't actually lend to a good result. You want to pull back, spend a little bit more time, be precise. Again, this is like surgery. You want to be very methodical about the areas that you're trying to, to fix and it'll do a lot of the work for you. You'll be surprised how much less of the correction stage you'll need once you do this part correctly. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. You can see that the skin. Now let me turn this layer on and off for you really quick. And it's not done by any means, but you can see what a vast improvement this has been already with such a minimal effort. Yeah, look at that. Look at that. And I'm sure the 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 model and the client will you know enjoy this image much much more now. Absolutely. And the rest of this is primarily doing the same thing a little bit further. For example, doing some more here on the eye. And I'm a very obsessive person, so I could sit here all day and, and, and you know, happily wear you guys down by watching me heal for like five hours. But I'm not going to It's therapeutic that. watching this. I like it. <laughs> it is. Um, I highly agree. I think Netflix should have a show of people just retouching. I would, I would watch that. I would um, definitely watch that. Netflix, if you're listening, we are so ready for this. That's right. Copyright. So here's a here's a question for you, Pratik. So there there are plugins out there that claim to do retouching, right? Yes. That claim to do, um, you know, I know, you know at the level that we're talking about with the high end pros that are you know working for magazines and that sort of thing. Of course, they probably would never use a plugin. They'll use a human or do it themselves, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but those plugins, what do, what do you think about those as as a professional retoucher? Is, is there merit there, or should photographers, like we said in the beginning, just buckle down, you know, take a course from you, or and learn how to do it themselves? I used to be such an elitist when it came to plugins, where I was like, no, you should never use a plugin. Do everything manually, and you know, do everything the hard way. It was like. Um, and but then I realized that you know after actually playing with them and giving them a try, obviously they never got the high end results that you know our clients are accustomed to using. But when it came down to things like wedding clients and you're trying to send proofs and you're trying to quickly just have a general sense of um, what the final image should look like for client purposes, that's really handy. Um, but you'll definitely never get to the high end results by doing them with plugins. But you know I don't see anything wrong with experimenting and seeing that where it falls short where it doesn't does it fit into your workflow can it work for certain areas like that are not obvious like you know arms and, and things like that but ultimately in my workflow i don't use plugins for skin just because most of what i do is um very handcrafted and and the look itself is very noticeable mm -hmm. um, and the thing that plugins often do that you don't really think about is when you think of what skin looks like, and you zoom in here all the way down to the pore level, now we have our almost to the DNA level here, as I say. Yeah. <laughs> what you notice is that the, the realism actually comes from these minor nuances that you see, these little variations of dark to light to dark to light. And what we're actually trying to do is actually level out those larger nuances. For example, at this level, we are trying to make these areas more uniform for example like this area maybe needs to be evened out a little bit more so i'll go in and heal it out and maybe i'll use a dodge and burn technique to balance out the skin but at the pore level we're trying to keep these 
minor nuances so the skin looks very real. And with a lot of the plugins, what they do is they'll smooth out the skin. So they actually remove these transitions that are actually quite beautiful, mm -hmm. even though they might keep the texture on top. So, you know, they try to keep the illusion of, well, the texture is still there, so it looks real. But the reality is realism is more than just texture. It's the combination of how the pores look, the darkness and lightness of the pores in relation to how texturized that specific area is. So plugins can kind of break apart that formula of what realism can be. Interesting. Okay. Great. Yeah. And so, you know, aside from just healing, what I would do next is once I'm done with the healing work, I typically will always um, come and do some dodge and burn work. And I'll show you that really quickly. Um, I, if you're not familiar with dodge and burn, it's basically the process of lightening and darkening. In the dark room, we used to do that too. We darken and lighten. And I have an action for dodge and burn, and I'm going to run that really quickly and I'll explain what that is. Mm -hmm. But when I click on dodge and burn, it actually adds this folder here on my layer palette. It converts it to black and white because I'm trying to see the tonal values of the image. Now I'm trying to render the colors useless for the time being. And I'm trying to pay attention to the dark and light areas of the skin that I want to even out. Um, and now when we analyze our folder, over here, our first layer here is actually just a curve layer. And this curve layer, let me bring the properties out for a second so you can look at the curves. Um, this curve is simply, you know, a standard curve. I've pushed the midpoint up, and that's going to lighten the areas that I brush in. And the burn curve here is simply going to be the darkening method that we use, but the curve is pushed downwards from the midpoint. Mm. And the effect of that is that when we brush with white on this particular mask, it's going to brighten whatever we paint. And if you had to look at this image... Do you think that, um, you know, when you look at this image, when you look at the under eyes and you look at the sides of the eyes here and you look at the neck, there's some darker patches that I kind of want to lighten up. Yeah. And that's going to actually improve the smoothness of the skin without actually smoothing anything. So it's kind of like an illusion. That's interesting. Okay. Cool. So I'm going to click on the mask here and then I'm going to use my regular paintbrush. And my go-to at the moment is... My hardness is 0%, my opacity is going to be 100%, and my flow is going to be around 1% to 2%. And then with that in mind, I'm going to use white as my main foreground color. And if you don't have a white as a foreground color, just make sure it's set to white. And then I'm going to come in here and then simply start brushing in these areas that have like a really hard transition from um, mid-tone to highlight or mid-tone to shadow. And usually that's going to be like under the eyes, on the side of the mouth, you know, on the side of the temple in case there's any patchiness, mm -hmm. and then kind of play with it that way. And, and this, to get to get that dodge and burn group there, how did you get to that again? I actually um, have an action that I have in the retouching series that I make it easy for people to kind of just click on them and set them awesome. up. Awesome. Okay, good, yeah. good, good. Okay. But if people actually want to set it up manually, they actually have to go into the you know adjustment layer panel. They have to go to curves. They have to actually come up here like this and set it. And then they click on their mask and they have to hit command I. So it's like a whole process. They go through every single time they have to retouch an image. Mm -hmm. So I figured, you know what? It's easy. Just have one action that has it all set up for you automatically. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Good. So these workflow actions are so handy, and I use them on a regular basis, too. I use a lot of these, and I explain them in all of them in detail um, as well. But just to give you an idea of how they kind of run, um, it's very, very handy. And as you can see, now using my shortcuts for brush size with my brackets, I can change the brush size based on the area that I'm actually, you know, lightening up. And when I turn that on and off, you'll see that these small brush strokes, even though they look subtle, actually do play a huge important factor in how smooth and uh, the skin looks well it's like you're, you're it's like you're you're retouching a level deeper like yes you're, uh, you're under the skin almost exactly exactly we're going we're going we're this conversation getting really deep huh <laughs> it is many it, levels yeah, deep that's that's what we do we're retouching man this is important yeah. stuff Funny enough, when I retouch, I always get into a specific frame of mind that, you know, brings in um, 
different ideas that I don't think of when I'm not retouching. I'm in a frame of mind that is very open to ideas and possibilities because retouching is very zen-like. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get in the zone and you get in the groove and you learn how to do it properly and all it is is almost autopilot just going through the motions, yeah. it's a very relaxing experience. You get into your retouching flow state. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yep. And so people who hate retouching, I think you should learn retouching just for this purpose. You can get here and join us. Love it. <laughs> Now, when you when you retouch and you're on a job like this, and you know you're just sort of working your way through it, what's what's your your process? You know, I know some people put on music; they have to have headphones on; they have to be in a specific part of the house. You know, <laughs> what, do you do you have any sort of rituals like that that you adhere to? If I can, I will put on music. And funny enough, um, I I try to listen to music as much as possible. I've asked this question to many people. Some people are always this. In silence, some people prefer not listening to anything, which I could never do. Um, I don't know if you're... What type of person are you? Do you listen to music? Do you listen and watch Netflix? Music. You know, generally I like to have music on, but sometimes... You know, it depends. Sometimes I'll put on um, a YouTube video, you know, and just have YouTube playing in the background, yeah. you know. <laughs> or or what I've been watching lately has been those sort of speed, sped up um, compositing <laughs> videos. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> those are fun to watch just to kind of get an idea of how, you know, the people like you put things together. <laughs> I totally agree. Music for me, I think, is my jam. Like watching that is, um, listening to that is very instrumental or podcast, like listening to your episodes and what you guys talk about is, is really awesome because you learn a lot on the side and, you know, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's almost like like sometimes if I'm writing, like if I'm writing a blog post or an article or something, just taking myself out of place and going to a coffee shop like a Starbucks or something yeah. and sitting down with my headphones on and just the energy of being around strangers yes. affects, affects how you, affects your creative output, right? Yeah, it's true. And we get into this um, idea of like having, you know, creative energies influencing us when we are, when we're working, which is very, very true. Um, so if you ever in a, if you are ever in a rut and you need to to get out there, just go to a coffee shop and work and be surprised at how creative you end up. Or reach out to fellow creatives, and sometimes we do that too. We reach out to fellow creatives and have a work day, and um, it's very 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 cool. And people often are lonely w- working from home, like many of us are, but we're too scared to reach out to our fellow colleagues and say, hey, let's actually get together and catch up on some work. And you'll be surprised how people say yes. Yep. Yep. I agree. So there we go. Here's a here's a quick look at what we've done so far, and you can see this is kind of where I'm trying to get to. Look like, at that! Look at that! You like without even it's very subtle, but when you when you toggle that layer that layer group on and off, it's almost like ten years are coming off. Of her. Yeah, and it's funny because when you look at a person um, in real life, these elements that we got rid of weren't elements that you know, she inherently has, which are noticeable. But when we capture the still frame, we tend to see these small nuances, again, because our memory distorts the reality. Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to remove whatever we didn't see in person. And Pratik, what what is your philosophy on teeth? Like brightening teeth? I know some people will always brighten teeth (laughs) and and the whites of the eyes to make the eyes pop out. Some people will go into the retinas and make those more enhanced. Do you have a philosophy on that? I actually try to brighten the colors of the eyes without trying to brighten the whites of the eyes as much. And Mm. the reason for that is when you brighten the whites of the eyes, um, psychologically, you tend to notice that something is different about this portrait. And Mm. it it could be a negative way, could be a positive way. And for me, when you brighten the color color of the eye, but keep the brights of the eye the same, you don't change the lighting structure, but you still retain the attention and focus it back on the eyes themselves. So you're getting the best of both worlds. You're making it look natural and you're bringing focus back to the eyes as well. Um, When it comes to teeth, teeth is a very subjective area. I'll whiten teeth a little bit, but when it comes to whitening teeth, you wanna make sure that you're not actually making them gray. Uh, And (laughs) I see this happen a lot where they actually desaturate the teeth entirely. I think the best method to actually whitening teeth is having a a blank layer. And you want to set it to the color blend mode. We're going to talk about color now. So we're going to click on the color blend mode and it's going to be blank. And what this is going to do is whatever color is on your main foreground color. So maybe if it's 
let me do like an off-white pearlescent color. And I select that. And I'm going to bring my flow to, say, 10%. I'm going to click one, one on my keyboard with this selected, and it's going to change it to 10. Or you can use a slider here. Mm -hmm. And whenever I start brushing, you see how it went from kind of like a yellowish tinge to um, a more lighter yeah. color. And I don't want to use white completely because if I use white, I'm going to change it to white. And if I change it to white and start brushing the teeth in, Look what happens. Yeah, they start Turns. looking blue or grayish, yeah. Exactly. And when you have gray in presence and surrounded by a framing of warmer tones, it actually takes the interpretation of a blue color visually. Uh -huh. So scientifically accurate colors are not always visually accurate, therefore also wrong. So you always want to be sure that it's not 100% desaturated. You're trying to maybe even lessen the opacity of the layer to around 50% or so. Or, like I initially stated, you can pick like an off-white color like we had before and then brush that in. And then what that does is it'll keep, let me go back to my regular brush tool, and I'm gonna sample this color here, and then just brush that in. And so what that'll do is instead of having like a, you know, gray color, it'll have more like an off-white yellow pearlescent color. And that's usually the color that teeth typically are rather than completely gray wow that's a, that's a excellent and I, I think that's a that's a good rule of uh just a rule to live by um because like we were saying in the beginning the reality is in perception are different like in, in the perception is that yeah i want my teeth to be paper white right because yes. that's where we when we brush our teeth we're trying to get them white as possible <laughs> yeah. we use whitening toothpaste and the, we want white teeth because that means health and you know sexy and all yeah. this other stuff and yellow teeth is the opposite of that right yeah. so yellow teeth <laughs> is a sign of a full life <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and you eat good stuff uh, but in reality especially on a beauty portrait like this the no one no one wants perfectly white teeth because exactly. it looks unnatural and it looks weird, right? You, yeah. Again, you don't want people to say, wow, what tooth whitener do you use? That looks yes. amazing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the, the whole key here is you want to keep, you want to improve the image, but you don't want to make everything the central, view, the central point of the image. No one area of the image is a Beyonce. The Beyonce is a full image. Yeah. Every element is the background singer. So you want to yeah. tie those in like that. I love that. I'm I'm using that. I'm using you, that. Definitely. We should form our own band and our own promo material using a, a theme. Yes. Idea. I love it. I love it. I'm in. I'm in. And, you know, speaking on the aspect of color, right? Like when you look at the before and after here, I'm going to use the alter option button and click on the eye in the background. And you'll see what difference we've made collectively with the healing and the dodge and burn. And, and it still looks very real. It still looks very clean. And obviously, you can go a little bit further if you want to, but when you zoom out like this and we look at it to the perspective of whatever is coming on social media for print or for 8x10s, this honestly is more than enough. And it's 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 still really clean and, and something that I would be proud of using too. And realistic. What, what about, um, what's your philosophy on distorting images like with liquify and you know taking bulges away or, or adding <laughs> adding different definition using that I, is that is that legal i it depends what state you're in <laughs> <laughs> I know. definitely not legal in kentucky <laughs> uh, i tell you and i think i think that we should use liquify to um for a couple of reasons we should use liquify to correct distortion so you know sometimes you use a 50 millimeter too close or 35 millimeter really close and you have this distortion happening say maybe in a fashion image where your legs are closer to the frame i sometimes use liquify to correct for distortion um, i also use liquify to correct for any bulges that happen because of um, poses so maybe you have an area where maybe the arm is pressed up against the body body so the arm is bigger than it would what it would be in real life so for those particular instances liquefying is fantastic um and also for body lines maybe you want to have a, cl a clean line around the face or the jawline or you know something that you want to make it just look tight and really clean then liquefy is great for that or even clothing but ultimately you don't want to use liquefy to really shrink someone anymore Nowadays, people are going away from that entirely. It was something where in the beginning, people had this power to do so much liquify work, so they did. Yeah. Same with the skin retouching, but mm -hmm. now it's now people are 
um, pulling back and saying, hold the phone, we are going way too far. Yeah, professional retouchers, kids in their selfies, however, <laughs> oh, yep. that's, There's a, that's a whole different story. Like, how how is your butt that big and your waist that small? I don't understand. It's like physically impossible. <laughs> I don't know. Have you tried celery? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The celery filter. That's what that was. <laughs> No, that's cool. You know, one thing that you told me, I think it was you uh, in that interview that we we did in Phoenix was the um, yeah, I was I was talking about the idea of like, where's the line at like retouching wise and like, obviously, you're going for realism and, you know, you're not distorting, you're making the person just look generally better. And I think it was you that, that said that you don't add or remove anything that is that would be there in three weeks or a month from now yeah. or something like yeah. that was that yeah can you go into that a little bit yeah it's it's cool because when you look at a celebrity or when you look at somebody who is of a prominent figure or maybe somebody that you're taking a portrait of um you really want to keep into consideration is that mole or beauty mark something that they cherish they do like about themselves and if that's the case, don't remove it. You know, look at their portfolio if they're a model and see what type of stuff they like to keep. Maybe it's that little tattoo that you kind of want to remove because you think it'd be look better without it. But always ask the subject before doing it because yeah. it might be something that they really actually like about themselves. Yeah. Um, and even when when it comes to topics like body positivity and and shooting portraits, um, a lot of classes and photographers do teach the fact that you know sometimes you don't want to assume that someone wants to be skinnier. You know, sometimes some people, you know, really want, really enjoy who they are. They appreciate who they are in their own form and they're comfortable. So you don't always want to make someone skinnier just because you think society, you know, should require them to be that way or anything like that. So always double check with somebody before you do that. Yeah, that's interesting because it was, you know, again, back to that conference that you and I were at, Peter Lindbergh. Yeah. Um, famous oh fashion icon um, was scheduled to do the keynote there, and I know one of one of his sort of tent poles was real, the realistic body image, yeah. and and celebrating that, and not overly retouching people, and you know, sort of playing into their strengths versus making them into something that they're not. Do you you subscribe to that philosophy? I know I know Sue Bryce is in that world as well. What, what yeah. about what about critique? Now, that's you know when I saw that I was really interested in in seeing his viewpoint because it's very admirable in that point in time where he could actually photograph people, um, especially coming to digital age where even ten years ago everyone wanted to be overly retouched and still retaining um, that level of detail. I think that that in itself is commendable that he was known for that look and many people are today are not. Um, it's almost like he he joined photojournalism with fashion photography and that's what made him very special i love a lot of elements from his his stuff but being obsessed with retouching it's difficult to keep you know almost everything um but i commend him um and i honestly think from my perspective i like removing elements that wouldn't be there um if my memories didn't show them to be there so Mm -hmm. i'm in i'm in between those viewpoints when i approach my work yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I've also I've heard people say that, and I've also heard it depends on the client, right? Because in the end, you're servicing the client. So if the yeah. client says, you know, make me look great, I want to look ten pounds thinner. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, it's hard. You're, yeah, you have to do that. You're like, no, <laughs> we got to leave you where you are because that's how. Yeah, but on the other side, I totally get the ethos of of embracing reality and and a positive a positive self image. Yeah, that's that's interesting. One one of the other thing I want to ask you is, as you were going through your demo, mm-hmm. which is lightning fast, uh, how do you do that? Are you are you using a mouse? Are you using a trackpad? Are you using a Wacom tablet? I know some people. I just had a conversation with Aaron Nace earlier today from Flern, <laughs> and Aaron Nace like, I would not work without a Wacom tablet, you know. And conversely, I interviewed someone the other week that does amazing work with only the trackpad on her MacBook Pro. Wow. Where does where do you fall? <laughs> I I just use my right foot. I think that's the best way. <laughs> Wasn't that a movie? No, it was my left foot. It was yeah. <laughs> so, so what what's the right way? Like if people want to want to be like Pratik, well, how should they how should they set themselves up? I when I started, I initially used the mouse. I was a gamer before, so mouse for me was the most efficient and accurate tool that I could use for retouching. But then eventually I learned how to use a stylus and a tablet. It took me, I think, a good two weeks or so to actually feel comfortable. Um, 
And I, if you're in any of those camps, I would say give another tool a try, whether it's using a mouse and then going to a Wacom tablet. Like I'm not sponsored by any Wacom or stylus companies. You know, I'm not a, a ambassador or anything like that. So I don't have any notions or regrets saying try anything because ultimately you just want the best tool for yourself. Now, for me personally, I like using a Wacom tablet for everything. And the, and the demonstration that I just did, I use the uh, Wacom Intuos Pro. It's mm -hmm. a small version. And the small for me was the best because you're able to you know quickly get to every position on the screen without moving your hand so much and and within the course itself i also have many videos on you know setting up your dodge and burn layers and your settings and also your tablet because the tablet and the settings you have for that is so critical and yeah. making it easier for yourself and getting up to speed i love that so let, let's transition oh, oh b before we leave that did you have anything else to show on the on the demonstration side or yeah, um, how much, actually, do we have some time to go over one more thing as well? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, okay, for sure. Cool. I want to show a little bit about color grading. Um, and within the last year, I actually, you know, and I want to put this in the description too, but within the last year, um, color grading was something that I really wanted to tackle. Because for me, color grading, I'm not a very artistic person in the sense that I can't just see colors like, oh, I know what where to go with the colors of this particular image. But I do know I like color grading. When I see professional color graders, I'm like, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm like, I need some help. <laughs> and, and it's hard to hire a colorist every single time you're trying to come up with something beautiful. So what I ended up doing was over the last 10 years, I've worked on so many editorials in my life that, you know, I've gotten reference files from people and I've seen PSD files and I've delivered my PSD files with layers. And it takes a really long time to come up with a set of layers that can produce a really beautiful color grade. And so what I would do is um, I would look at my old PSD files and they would have a set of adjustment layers on them. And I would notice that there was a formula to them. You know, for example, whenever I use, say, like color balance, I notice that I would never push like my midtones beyond a certain number or magenta beyond a certain number. And I would go through, I think it was like 300 or 400 different files that I love my color grade on, and I'd write down these parameters. And what I realized was if I actually had a tool that randomized a set of adjustment layers that didn't exceed those parameters and saw how they interacted with themselves, we could come up with an amazing array of different color tones for your image. And so I have this tool that I use on my work as well, and it's called Infinite Color. And I developed this with my good friend, Connie Wallstrom, who's a developer, and he has his own um, set of retouching tools, but he helped me bring this into life. And basically the way this works is, it's very easy to look at. You just hit the create button when you load it. And what it does is once you hit the create button, it comes up with this folder. And within this folder, it has these five different adjustment layers. And every time you hit create, it randomizes these settings and these parameters. And the interaction between all of them produces different color grades that are completely unique every time you run me? them. That it's killer. That yeah, really and cool. because I never wanted to keep on being limited to number of actions that I had or whatever. I wanted to have an unlimited number of options so I could decide what I liked and didn't like. So it's like window shopping for colors. And so, and it has my formulas baked into them basically, like what I consider how, you know, what looks pleasing and not pleasing and how far to go and not to go. Mm -hmm. So for instance, this one that I ran is really nice because it has this warmer window light look to it that matches what I kind of was going for that day. And the benefit of this is now that it has all my five different adjustment layers, I can easily just say reduce the opacity if I want to. I can rename and rename this and call this like look one. And then I can run another one if I want to, and then have just an infinite number of looks that I can compare and contrast with. Mm -hmm. So this is like a filmic look, you know, and it opens up the shadows more and it has this browner tone that can merge the green and brown tones together. And there's all bunch of stuff you can do with it. And obviously I'm gonna link that as well with other, you know, videos, but you can shuffle independent layers. So if you're like, you know what, I don't like the gradient map, I'm just gonna reshuffle this. So now, just the gradient map alone can randomize again. Oh, that's fantastic. And it does it right in there. Okay. Yeah. 
So you can actually go through each one and say, what what is each one doing? And so this can also become like a free learning tool for you to learn color grading. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. And there's different intensities that you can use. And finally, there's also this little button called Harmonize. So what happens when I click on Harmonize, um, it actually tries to figure out the highlights, shadows, and midtones of the image. And then comes up with a triadic color scheme, like your mid highlights, shadows, and midtones. And so you can see the highlight colors here, which is the beige tone. And then it figures out what is the complementary shadow midtone colors and makes a color scheme for you. So in case you have no idea where to start, this is a good starting point. <laughs> yeah. And then you can change it to whatever colors you want because it's already set up for you and all of that. So everything is already there. It's customizable and you can save them. You can save each of these guys as little actions and presets too. So that's really fun. That is really cool. Okay, where do, where do I get that? <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is on infinitecolorpanel.com, and um, I'm gonna put a discount code as well in case people wanna you know check it out and, and and have a play with it. And we have a really great community of people who are color grade enthusiasts. So if you, even if you're not interested in this and you just want to be a part of a color grading community, come join us. We invite we welcome everybody. I, I need that. I'm going to play with that. I also need you to develop the, the infinite color palette for uh, Premiere and Final Cut Pro, right? please. Yes, yes. I'll, I'm on that. <laughs> <laughs> I need that. I want to put my order in now for that. <laughs> hey, but you know, the other thing is you can turn these into LUT files. You can use them for Premiere and Final Cut, too. Oh, wow. Oh, you can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Photoshop has a method to um, actually um, turn them into LUT files. So you can turn to, here, color lookup tables. Yeah. You see? Yes. And so just you can export this uh, folder or set of adjustment layers. So I would actually highlight all of these and then say file, um, was it export, and then color lookup tables. And then you can say description, whatever the file name is. And then you can import that into Premiere. So sometimes when I'm doing shoots, I'll, I'll take the frame. So when I'm, whenever I'm done with it, I'll export that to a lookup table and then color grade the video to match my to match my Photoshop file. Oh, that is killer. See, that's another pro tip. You see how yeah. you slip those pro tips in there? <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic, man. That is really cool. Yeah. So, wow. Okay, so what what's next for, for Pratik? So you, you're a high-end retoucher, very sought after. You're running around the country like a rock star. <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're teaching. You were just teaching at the Super Ice thing. Like, what, what is next on your docket, on your calendar? Um, I think this year and the coming years, I'm trying to de develop more of a community and push the education side more just because I love seeing what people actually do with information. And, and especially when I got started, there wasn't information presented in a way that was understandable for someone like me who needs to slow down and spend some more time going over the smaller details. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to put together more opportunities for people to learn in var various ways, whether it's, you know, an in-person kind of event with uh, during retreats or during extensive workshops um, and some more educational content, just hearing people out. I also like to be online often and support people and, and try to see what they're up to and, and, and try to help people that way. So all kinds of stuff. I love that. I love that. If, if people want to connect with you, um, hire you, see some of the stuff that you're working on, we'll have some samples in this blog post, obviously. Yeah. Um, but if people want to you know, connect with you on a personal or a professional basis, what's the best way to do that? I think the best way is if you go to uh, my website, solsticeretouch.com, and that handle itself is also uh, appro appropriate for Instagram and Facebook. And if you're looking to hire a retoucher, in case, obviously, if I'm not available, I can actually put you in touch with somebody um, who is available for skin retouching specifically. Um, and also, you know, connect with me on Facebook and Instagram because I'm very socially active, too. All right, Pratik. Well, well thank you, man, for, for coming on. I appreciate, you know, you giving me your time. I want to dive in and play around and just sort of you know, get my fingers around this retouching thing and, and understand it and try to do the, the critique method uh -huh. of retouching, you know, with the dodging and burning and on the, you know, using curves and all that. What, you know, I, obviously I can do it on my own images. Should I, mm -hmm. what's up? It's like for people that don't have the, their own images to retouch. Mm -hmm. 
Can they just go grab some offline, like from the stock photo sites and, and retouch there? Or what are, what are your suggestions? Or should they just, you know, go take a photo of their mom and <laughs> get started? <laughs> um, if, if you're trying to learn retouching and if you do anticipate actually picking up the retouching series, we include all the files as part of the course, too. Nice. So anything that I'm actually working on, you can download and work alongside with me. Um, or the second thing is just go to Frederick's website and you can totally use any of his images for free. He'd there you that. go. Right on. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> you know, go to Pratik's website. He's, yeah. You got a complete worldwide royalty-free license to use. <laughs> use whatever you want. Yeah. It, well, cool, man. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure chatting with you. We awesome. got to hang out. We got to oh, hang out. Definitely. We, didn't, we didn't get a chance to hang out in Phoenix, but we have to We have to make it a point. Next time we're in the same city, we got to hang out. I owe you a beer for all this. Oh, for sure. I I would love that so much, Frederick. All right, you got it. All right, Pratik, take care, man. See you guys. Take care. This is Twitter.